Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. And it's a special edition of Hack because it's International Women's Day and we like to mark this day by telling you stories about women, not only in Australia, but around the world, the challenges they face, the successes that they've achieved. And we do have some big stories coming up for you on this edition of Hack. In a sec, we're checking in with Afghanistan and you'll know we've been looking at Afghanistan over the past couple of years especially where the rights of women and girls have been stripped away in a pretty dramatic fashion since the Taliban took hold. Then later you're going to hear from women who were forced into sex slavery right here in Australia. We've got a journalist who's been covering this story intensely over the past few years. People know this is happening here in Australia, so what is being done about it? Later on the podcast, something different, we're going to be talking about young homeowners because we often hear from young homeowners when we talk about the rental crisis, for instance. They'll get in touch and say, what about us? There's some of us out here who have managed to buy a house really young in our early 20s, and these interest rates are killing us. We've seen the interest rate hikes leaving people on the brink of losing everything that they've worked for. We're going to have that story for you as well. It is a big show ahead. Let's get into it. Hack. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term impact on the whole population and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. On Triple J. You know, when the Taliban, a hardline Islamist group, took over Afghanistan in 2021, they promised they weren't going to strip back women's rights, that women would still be included in society. But less than two years later, a lot's changed. Women are now being told they can't work, they can't study, they can't even leave their homes. But despite that, so many women are standing up. Women like Selma Niazi, She's 22 years old, a journalist, and refuses to stop working. She's determined to expose human rights violations against women. But that means that her life is in danger. Shalala Madora has this extraordinary story. I am 22 years old and now I am the CEO of the Afghan Times. This is Salma Niazi. A few years ago, she decided that someone needs to record the atrocities that the Taliban are committing against women. She decided that someone had to be her. I chose journalism out of necessity when I started journalism. There were no female journalists in our area. I thought that here should be female journalists. English isn't Selma's first second or even third language. But she wanted to speak to us to let people in the West know exactly what's going on for women in Afghanistan. I do not see a good future for Afghan women in the Taliban rule. The Taliban is a hardcore Islamist group who were in charge of Afghanistan before Western troops, including Australia, joined in a war in the country after the 9-11 terror attacks. About 18 months ago, they took over Afghanistan again. When the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan in August of 2021, they sought to reassure Afghans and the international community that the rights of women and girls would be respected 
and that they would remain active members of Afghan society. But since then, things have gone from bad to worse. The Taliban have effectively barred women and girls from secondary schools and universities. They've restricted their employment, and they've even altogether banned their presence in many public spaces. Recently, the Taliban barred women from studying medicine, while also banning them from seeing male doctors in hospitals. And female aid workers can no longer work for NGOs, putting a stranglehold on incoming aid for the impoverished nation. Everything that is done against a one woman is wrong. Salma refuses to sit quietly and accept her rights and the rights of women around her being stripped away. They are not given the right to education. They are beaten in the Workflies, they are fired from their jobs. The Taliban are uneducated people and they are afraid of women who are educated. But saying something like that publicly comes at a huge personal cost. I am in exile because the Taliban threatened me, did not allow me to work in journalism. I was forced to leave Afghanistan. If Salma had stayed in the country of her birth, she faced the very real possibility of being executed by the Taliban. So she left. But she wants Australians who are listening to this to know that we can help. I want those and especially Australia to support Afghan women, give them educational scholarship. Now that uh, social media is out there, the news travel faster. Mariam Zahid moved to Australia when she was 19. She now runs Afghan Women on the Move and helps Afghan refugees resettle in Australia. She says Australia should be bringing more women activists here as refugees. And look at the visa issues, how long we've been waiting since the first wave of evacuees came to Australia. The Australian government has committed to resettling 31,500 Afghans here over the next few years. So far, fewer than 6,000 have been granted visas. Mariam says we're prioritising the wrong people. Everybody's talking about people that who are big and famous in Afghanistan and had some sort of connection with Australia or America or whatever. They got rescued, but the mover and shaker of the communities were women. The nurses, the doctors, the social workers, the community workers, they were not part of the evacuation programme. One woman we spoke to in Afghanistan described this as being sentenced to death in slow motion. I know this all sounds really overwhelming and you're probably wondering what, if anything, you as an individual can do to help. So we need the international community to stand up, to speak out when there are abuses, but we also need to see them taking concrete action. Nikita White works for Amnesty International in Australia. She told us that countries like Australia can turn the screws on the Taliban if we want to. Things like imposing travel bans on members of the Taliban, imposing targeted sanctions. Nikita says the newly minted Taliban wants to be taken seriously by global leaders. And she says that presents an opportunity for people like you and me to make a difference. It's really important that the Taliban knows that this pressure isn't just coming from governments or the UN or Amnesty, it's coming from everyday people. Hack on Triple Jack. Shalala Maduro with that story. I want to explore this issue a little more now. 
Labor Senator Fatima Payman is with us. You might remember she's the youngest member of this Australian parliament. Also, she's Afghan-Australian. She's with us now. Hey, Senator, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. So we've just heard really confronting stuff about the situation for women and girls in Afghanistan. What are you hearing about what the situation is like there at the moment? Look, it's so devastating to hear that the Taliban have come in, banned the women from universities and young girls from secondary school. They've stripped them off their basic human rights of getting an education, of participating in the workforce and just essentially erasing women from public life. And uh, it's very devastating to hear that. And it's so good to know that Australia has condemned the Taliban's actions um, and we stand with the women of Afghanistan. Is this playing out as you expected it would when the Taliban took over the country in 2021? Because back then I remember there were warnings that things um, could get really bad for women and girls, but, you know, the Taliban was had assurances that that wouldn't happen. Is this what you thought might happen? Look, with their track record, um, it was something that everyone anticipated and uh, it's just that they are people with a very backward mentality of keeping women away from public life, away from that public service and keeping them sheltered. And obviously we know that women and girls' access to education is so pivotal in a country's success and in a country's future because they too contribute and that's half the population. So I think everyone anticipated it, but not to this degree, perhaps. Look, it is International Women's Day today. Is there anything that you'd like to see change for women in Australia? Well, International Women's Day for me is a day where we celebrate women and we celebrate how far we've come, but also, like you mentioned, see how far we need to go, what are the gaps that need to be filled, um, and reflect and recognise that there's a lot of work to be done. So I think um, in spaces where we still uh, see women experiencing inequality, you know, they get paid less, they have fewer assets, they have less super, um, there's a higher level of domestic violence that we see and the list goes on. What we would like to see is obviously those things reducing uh, in, in the effect that it has, the disparity and seeing that gender gap decrease. These solutions aren't easy and it won't happen overnight, but we can't fix it if we don't start talking about it now. I mean, one of the things you said was it's also an opportunity to reflect on how far we've come. Do you see a lot having improved in recent years? Like, and do you notice that in the parliament itself? I definitely can see it being elected in one of the most diverse parliaments. You know, the Albanese Labor government has 54 women in a caucus of 103 members, which is such an incredible achievement. You know, we're majority female government. And it's great to know that there's that level of diversity that's reflecting the society we live in. And, you know, I look up to women like Penny Wong and Tanya Pluvisek and Linda Burney, um, who are my role models, um, along with women like, of course, within my own family, my mum, uh, who's been my rock, and my sister, who has been able to juggle a professional life with raising a kid. So there are so many women out there that we should be celebrating. And I guess these kinds of things 
politics can be separated from them. Like w- w- when you see women talk about their experiences in parliament or where we need to see improvements, you'll often hear people from different sides of politics come together and express the same concerns or um, celebrate the same wins. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think I've spoken about this earlier where the collegiate nature of the Senate, where we work on committees, um, I've been able to experience so many of women from other parties, whether it's the Greens, the Liberals, Independents, sort of coming up and showing that support. Being there for me in terms of like, you know, being generous with the advice they give. Like, I think this is something we don't see in the media. They just... You know, people see question time, they're like, oh my God, you must be like fighting all day, every day. And it's like, no, we we are here to represent our constituents, um, whatever values that our constituents hold. And, you know, that representation is important um, and we can agree to disagree. But at the same time, things like, you know, women's right comes to the table and it's, uh, we can have the same ideas of like achieving, but, it, you know, our methods can differ. And I think that's what politics comes down to. Well, look, I know it's a very, very busy day for you. You've got a lot on the burn at the moment, but I do appreciate you speaking with us, Labor Senator Fatima Payman. Happy International Women's Day and thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Hack. It is hiding in plain sight. Not enough's being done by governments all over the country to deal with it. On Triple J. You know, when you think of sex trafficking rings, you're probably not imagining that they're operating right under your nose. The truth is, though, behind closed doors in suburbs just like yours in Australia, this stuff is happening. Young women forced into sex work, trapped in brothels. Even though this is so serious, we don't hear a lot about it. It's underreported. But there's a new show that's lifting the lid on what's happening. It's called Revealed Trafficked. It's coming to Stan, and award-winning journalist Nick McKenzie is hosting it. He's with us now. Hey, Nick. Thanks for coming on Hack. Great to be here. Human trafficking. How much of this is going on in Australia? We don't really know because it is a hidden problem. The federal police say it's a growing problem, and certainly what we've exposed uh, in this new documentary is, I mean, it's hidden, but it's also hiding in plain sight. So there is, for instance... A brothel in Melbourne that we focus on is called Number 39. It's in South Melbourne, just a stone's throw from Crown Casino. Its connection to human trafficking, uh, sexual servitude, literally goes back years and years. The AFP have said to us that a a notorious human trafficker, but she was responsible at a time for bringing uh, well over 100 women from South Korea into Australia. So running 100 women at any one time over a number of years, and she was operating for at least 10 years. These are... uh, women who sometimes have no English language. Uh, They may have their passport taken away from them. There's a sense that they might be threatened if they confront the the trafficking syndicate or speak out. They're trapped via not just that fear, but via debt bondage. So they've racked up debt, say, for their airfares or education or visas. Uh, Those debts keep ballooning uh, and suddenly they feel like they have to work In one case, we've spoken to a trafficking victim who was taken to Melbourne, who worked at number 39 in related brothels, seven days a week, couldn't leave the premises, uh, had to service a whole range of customers in the most awful of conditions. The documentary is really about shining a light in that hidden part of our sex industry in Australia. I mean, you touched on this just briefly there, but how are these women being led into Australia? Like, what are they being told? 
A typical scenario is, let's say they might be working in a dance club or indeed they might be working in the sex industry in their hometown. We've looked at at China, we've looked at Macau, we've looked at South Korea. They're given an offer, say, if you come to Australia, you'll make uh, X amount of dollars uh, and it'll be a great life and you won't have to work too hard. But to get there, you'll need to go through all these steps. We'll get you your airfares, we'll get you your visa, Uh, we'll organise accommodation for six months. It's going to cost you let's say $50,000 and you'll owe us that money. So you'll work for free once you get to Australia until you pay that money off. Now that in and of itself is debt bondage or sexual servitude. That arrangement is illegal under Australian law, but suddenly they're they're trapped in this cycle of debt repayment and the debts, once they get to Australia, balloon. So suddenly there's other expenses that they're they're forced to pay and they're in more debt. So they have to work for longer hours. Now, yeah, it's really important to state there's parts of the sex industry where people have agency, uh, they're working of their free will, and we should absolutely respect those sex workers, as we should respect these sex workers, but they're sometimes not working of their own free will. Uh, they're being coerced, they're being trapped, and sometimes it's a subtle form of fear, so it's not obvious, uh, yet everyone deserves human rights and, and the rights to, to operate in a, in a proper, safe working environment, and that's not happening. And unfortunately, not enough's being done by governments all over the, the country to deal with it. I, I was shocked at the size of the syndicates and their resilience or their ability to, to operate despite law enforcement attention. Yeah, sometimes they have legal, well, they've got licences to run brothels. The, the Victorian government has given a notorious organised crime figure. He maintains a licence to run a licensed brothel in Melbourne. How on earth can that be? A Queensland senior police officer described the movement of the women who are caught up in these syndicates move like cattle around Australia and they're shunted around often to dingy motels and country towns. They work there for six weeks, then they're off to the next country town, the next dingy motel, and they're stuck there. They live seven days a week in rooms where they both sleep, eat, wash, and service clients. It's a disgusting and coercive and really sort of dehumanising environment. I'd I'd love to say I'm the best journalist going around, but the the fact of the matter is it wasn't that hard to uncover, at least in some cases. And that tells us it is hiding in plain sight. Yeah, Nick, why is it that you don't think we're hearing more about this? Because as a crime, it's... Like it's just horrible. It's something that nobody wants to think about, I guess, but it's something that it's hard to imagine being covered up. It's a hidden crime type and the victims are often silent. I, I do think there's an undercurrent of racism. Women from Asia who don't speak our language, uh, there's a part of our society that says, well, it's not our problem or they want to do it. So it's about saying these are real people with real stories and real suffering and we should all care. Uh, and that means every level of government doing more to confront and understand this problem. And it, uh, frankly, means those men who go to brothels. I'm not having a crack at, at those life choices, but think about what you're doing and think about the impact of what you're doing. And if you see something that looks like trafficking, be mindful about it. But again, the truth of the matter is there are online forums where Australian men talk in the most disgusting ways about the mistreatment of women they sometimes suspect are trafficked from overseas and they're treated like pieces of meat. And this is the corner of the sex industry 
that no one really wants to talk about, but we need to thrust in, into the into the public light. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with investigative reporter Nick McKenzie about his new documentary, Revealed Trafficked, exposing one of Australia's biggest human trafficking operations. Nick, where are authorities up to with all of this? Like you've spoken to victims, but you've also been speaking uh, with members of police as well. The best way to answer that is to put it in, in the words of one of the senior police officers that we interviewed from, from the Queensland Police Force. His name was Brad Phelps. A really classic story of the way state police have tended to look at trafficking. The first thing they think about is, oh, well, illegal prostitution, let's target the sex workers themselves. And Phelps said, hang on a second, we're seeing these women actually as the victims of exploitation. They're not getting paid enough, if at all, uh, and potentially of trafficking. Let's shift our policing model here and let's try to attack the syndicates, the crime bosses that are bringing them from overseas and exploiting them. Now, his task force has done that over a number of years, but what they're realising was this is a, a nationwide and indeed an international problem where a state jurisdiction like the Queensland cops then crack down they're moved interstate to Western Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. And if state police in those places aren't doing enough to tackle this, then the crime type continues. So what Phelps said from the Queensland Police perspective is we need all agencies doing a lot more, especially in the national sphere. Is that happening? The simple answer is, is no. Uh, what is happening is that human trafficking, you know, sexual servitude, uh, and other sorts of human trafficking, like forced marriage, is getting bigger and bigger as people move across the world in these cycles of absolute despair and exploitation. It feels like a really dangerous thing to be covering as a journalist as well, like a very hectic story. Has it been full on, you working on this case? Yeah, it, it was really uh, hectic. And I think uh, people who watch the documentary will get a, a sense of that. I mean, one of the things I think that is really unusual, it's not just about human trafficking, it's about the process of investigative journalism and how people like me do their jobs. And it's it's you know, pr pretty rough and raw and, and at times um, confronting. You can't help as a human being to, to care about the victims in this story. You can't help but get angry when you see the indifference from parts of our society or when you see police perhaps not doing as much as they could or when you hear... I mean, there's some really great detectives I've spoken to, mostly confidentially, who say, Nick, there's crime that we accept and there's unacceptable crime and trafficking in some states is a crime that we accept. You know, it fires you up to go after the crooks and we've confronted in, in, on two occasions these organised crime figures running these syndicates in Australia uh, and... Yeah, it is. Uh, it can be a bit scary. It's also, you know, you're energised because you want to you want to cast that light and hold these people to account, because in seeing it, you'll care about it, and understanding the suffering, you'll care about it, and and hopefully, people who watch it want to learn more, and they'll think when they when they walk out their door and you know, on the way to the pub and they walk past that you know, dingy massage parlour and they'll ask the question, what's going on inside here? And right now we know there are dozens if not hundreds of women who are not getting paid appropriately, working as sex workers and their bosses are organised crime figures and, and not enough is being done about that. And frankly, like, you know, we, we came across a human trafficking boss who was busted in the UK, came into Australia despite being a major organised crime figure, slips across our border. He should never have done that. If he was a boat person who'd, who'd arrived via boat, he'd be sitting on an offshore detention centre. He sets up a massive, what we think is a, a human trafficking underground sex syndicate across Australia, living large here 
we confront him, we track him down, and we expose him, yet somehow the authorities haven't been able to do that. Now, they scramble once he's exposed, and now he's on the, on the run. There's a deportation order for him. But confronting him and tracking him down was really important to say, well, it's not that hard, and if we can do it as journalists, uh, what's the state up to? Yeah, that's extraordinary. And, I mean, it must be satisfying in some way to see some action after you've, you know, worked very hard to expose this kind of stuff. But, as you say, it does raise a lot of questions. I'm really looking forward to watching. I'm sure a lot of listeners now are as well. Revealed, trafficked, you can catch it on stand from Sunday. Journalist Nick McKenzie, really appreciate you uh, coming on Hack and explaining it all to us. Thanks for having me. Hack. That's a lot of money extra you got to earn, and no one's earning extra money. So that, that impact is mentally huge. On Triple J. You know, you've been hearing quite a bit about the rental crisis on Hack. You know how hard it is for young people to crack into the housing market generally. But even if you've bought a house, it's not smooth sailing. In fact, some young Australians have been getting in touch with us saying, yeah, we managed to buy a place. They might live in the country, an area where it's a bit more accessible. But now we risk losing everything. Yesterday, interest rates rose for the 10th time in a row, and it means people with mortgages are forking out thousands of dollars more a month. And for some, it means their dream of home ownership could be gone just as they started celebrating. Is this you? How are you coping with these interest rate rises? I want to know, 0439 757 Kimberly Price has spoken to a few new homeowners who are feeling the pinch. I'm the kind of person who I need like future-focused goals to stay motivated and I currently feel like I cannot make any of those goals because my whole focus is just in survival mode. Lucy bought a house with her partner in mid-2022. I've been saving for eight years. I worked full-time. I worked a part-time job, which was night shift. I was working more than like 60 hours a week. It was unsustainable. It was ridiculous. What Lucy wasn't banking on was interest rates on her mortgage to continue rising. In the past eight months, her repayments have gone up an insane two and a half thousand dollars per month. I thought the grind of working full time and then also working casually was over, but with interest rates rising, it hasn't really been a reality. And to keep their home, Lucy and her partner have had to resort to some pretty extreme measures to get by. Gardening, dog sitting, house sitting, babysitting, all that kind of stuff. We've also rented out rooms on Airbnb, stays, that kind of thing. We flipped a lot of furniture. And for Lucy, she doesn't really know what the solution is until the economy gets fixed. I am like financially educated and I have like quite a lot of privilege behind me. I can't imagine how difficult this is for people who are like less privileged. This must be so difficult for so many people across Australia. Amid the COVID pandemic, the Reserve Bank of Australia kind of said they wouldn't raise interest rates until 2024. So a lot of people jumped on the home loan bandwagon with low interest rates under 2% and expected it would stay that way for some time. Now the Reserve Bank of Australia, aka RBA, is the nation's central bank whose job it is to create and maintain policies to keep our economy stable. At the interest rate of 1.89%, if you bought a home for $400,000 with a 30-year loan, your repayments would be $630 a month. But now, with interest rates sitting around 5% for the exact same house with the exact same loan time, you're paying $1,667 a month. 
literally $1,000 more. If you're 25 years old, this is the first time in your working life where you've actually felt some hard times. So this is real. That's Glenn James, host of My Millennial Money podcast. Over the years, he's helped a lot of people afford to buy their homes. And he's heard a lot about how they're faring now. There's effectively two main problems. Their mortgage repayments are just going up every single month. And the second problem is that mortgage cliff that we've seen, people coming off a 1.89% fixed rate to maybe 5% overnight. So where is all this money from interest rates going? Yeah, so effectively, when banks lend you money, they have borrowed that money themselves. So the bank might pay 4%, to get money to lend out to you at 5.5%. So they'll make that 1.5%. That's called spread. And amid the interest rate rises, Glenn says we are starting to see the banks who are making money out of interest rates start to pay that back through the interest return you get on your savings accounts. But he doesn't believe we're at the end of seeing the RBA increase their interest rates. We can confirm that the RBA has increased, as expected, the cash rate to 3.6%. That's a quarter of a percentage point increase in the month of March, the 10th increase in a row. There is likely to be maybe another couple of increases this year. We know that it looks like inflation may have peaked. Despite Glenn believing we're through the worst of it, it may be a while before things settle. In the meantime, we know people are struggling. Those 18 to 24, the data shows us that 58%, so almost 6 out of 10 of those surveyed, ranked cost of living as something driving up increased rates of distress. That's Matthew McLean, Deputy CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia. He says almost half of all Australians are reporting increased distress from cost of living pressures. We're now seeing out of Victoria and New South Wales major increases to suicide rates in 2022. This data is a clear wake-up call that we need to do more. But there are steps people can take to help their financial situations. We've been working with some of the big banks around this. The important thing to do is to have those conversations with your bank early and access those supports before things do get really out of hand. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price reporting there. And remember, if you do need some help, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. We've also got people on the line as well. Laura from Geelong is with me. Hey, Laura, what's your situation? Uh, so I, similar to what you were talking about before, bought a house and built a house this time last year. When my mortgage started, it was 1700 a month. With the interest rate rises, it's been going up like $100 a month, and I'm now at about $1,200 a fortnight on wow. my mortgage. Yeah. And as a part-time worker, that's most of my wage. Yeah, I can imagine. So now are you thinking you might have to go back to renting? Absolutely. Looking at the way that things are increasing, I don't see how in the next six months I can continue this. So my options are putting it on the market and going back to renting where I know that's probably going to be a bit safer. Hey, Laura, look, there are so many people in a similar situation to you. Thank you so much for calling in with your experience. Beth says, I bought a house on my own last year with mortgage costing a grand extra. I now have barely anything to live on. And a lot of other messages, people saying similar things. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.